0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Hello, this is Saul David from the Battleground Ukraine podcast. And this is just a quick insert to explain that the following big interview with Alan Phillips was recorded before the Wagner mutiny. It's important to say that all those events took place before uh, Alan had a chance to discuss the wider issues. Having said all of that, I think it's pretty clear that his insight into Russia and also the senior military leadership is pretty much on the mark.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast big interview with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Our guest this week is Alan Phillips, author, veteran foreign correspondent, and Russian expert who first visited the Soviet Union as a teenager. He spent many years in Moscow as a correspondent for Reuters and the Daily Telegraph and is the author of a new book which looks at the history of some of his predecessors as they tried to cover the Second World War from the heavily restricted confines. Of the luxurious, at least by Soviet standards, Metropole Hotel. It's called The Red Hotel, and it's a must read for anyone wanting a highly entertaining and illuminating account of how the Russians tried to control the narrative back then and what it says about their information strategy now. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Could we start by asking you to tell our listeners a bit about what inspired you to write The Red Hotel?
1: Well, this book had a very long gestation. Uh, I'd first worked in Moscow as a foreign correspondent, and I was the Reuters trainee in 1979. That was in the time when uh, the doddering old Brezhnev was still in charge. After that, I was appointed, for reasons best known to Reuters, to be the correspondent in Tunis. And there I discovered um, the BBC correspondent was an extraordinary woman called Tanya Matthews, And uh, she had been, in her youth, one of the interpreters for the British and American foreign correspondence, corralled in the Metropole Hotel uh, in 1941 to 45. There wasn't much news in Tunisia, so we spent a lot of time reminiscing about Moscow and she telling me her life story. She actually married one of the journalists, a very eccentric Englishman called Ronnie Matthews. He was known for always having a tube of toothpaste uh, in his breast pocket which he would take out from time to time and have a little nip. And if he was feeling in a generous mood, he'd offer it around. I'm rather surprised that no one else wanted to, wanted to have a, a little taste of Colgate. Anyway, uh, Tanya had taken on his job and uh, was a BBC correspondent there. Um, I was called back to Moscow in the Gorbachev era. It didn't last long. Uh, like many foreign reporters at that time, I was expelled in one of these exchange of so-called spies, not that I was, the Gordievsky affair. So I didn't go back to Russia for quite some time. Uh, but when I did, it was a new regime. It was the Russian Federation. And I used to go to the Metropole Hotel, which was not the best, but full of history and pacing the eerily wide corridors, I could imagine Stalin and Lenin and Trotsky being there. They'd all addressed huge, uh, well, big meetings there when it was uh, one of the seats of the Soviet of the Soviet government. Uh, and I could feel the the ghosts of St- Stalin's purges, because many of the senior Bolsheviks had grace and favor apartments there and had been arrested at, uh, in the middle of the night. Eventually, actually, it was as late as twenty seventeen. A Russian friend, knowing of my interest in the metropole, handed me a book, a Russian book, which was the history of the hotel, newly written, and I turned to the Second World War section, and I found the names of some of the other translators, and indeed the, uh, the British and American journalists, and I thought, well, now it's time to uh, do some research and make this book happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's absolutely gripping, and for an old hack uh, like myself, uh, it's, I've got a sort of huge professional interest in the way... Uh, things were done in those days. But they were a pretty kind of uh, extraordinary bunch, weren't they, the journos that found themselves, both British and American and indeed Australian, who found themselves uh, banged up in the, in the metropole in those years.
1: Yes. When the Soviet Union joined the war on the Allied side, Churchill had insisted that Stalin accept a press corps, a Western press corps in Moscow. Stalin, of course, had no interest whatsoever in a foreign press. He'd managed to uh, make life so difficult for foreign reporters that they'd largely decamped. Even the New York Times had decamped. Anyway, Churchill insisted Stalin let it happen. And uh, the best war correspondents fought tooth and nail to get a passage to Moscow, which was pretty difficult in those days. But uh, they found themselves just stuck in the hotel. They were never allowed to get to the front line and certainly didn't see or hear a shot fired in anger. Basically, they were told, whatever you write, it has to be something that's already appeared in the Soviet press. Well, anyone who knows what's been in Pravda and his vestia uh, is well aware that there's no detail there. So they they were a grumpy bunch, but they sort of held on because they thought, well, uh, either we're going to see uh, the fall of Moscow, uh, which would have been one of the biggest stories of the war, or as it turned out and uh, the Red Army began to turn the tide of the war, uh, if they followed the Red Army, they'd get to Berlin before anyone else, which sort of happened. But uh, basically, there was years of waiting before uh, any decent eyewitness copy uh, was filed.
2: And it's obviously, clearly, from the Second World War on, been a tricky place to report from Moscow. Um, did you see similarities between some of the difficulties they face in your book and, and when you were there? And has it actually become even trickier in recent years?
1: Well, in one way, it's become much trickier because there are no rules. I mean, that's, that's the way Putin works. There are no rules. As we've seen in the case of Ewan Gershkovitz, the Wall Street Journal reporter, he is in jail facing charges of espionage. Or having gone to Ekaterinburg and asked questions about uh, military factories um, in the Cold War days, uh, if, you if you misbehaved, if you misbehaved, they just tell you to go. They wouldn't, or they wouldn't renew your visa. Um, it was it was a game played by 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 certain rules. Obviously, I got expelled as a part of a, a clear out following the Gordievsky affair, under which the uh, the top man of the KGB in London. Uh, had been revealed as working for British intelligence all along. So the Russians were pretty cross about that, so they got rid of lots of people. But there were rules, and uh, a British or American journalist would not end up in jail. Um, the big difference, of course, in, by 1979, uh, there was no censorship, but there was a lot of self-censorship because if you've taken the trouble to learn Russian over a number of years, you don't want to lose your right to come to Russia uh, as a journalist uh, unless the story is absolutely huge. So self-censorship rather than uh, enforced censorship was the rule of the day when I started.
0: And the difference, it seems to me, Alan, between then and now, a fundamental difference is that back in the the war days, the Soviet propaganda effort was really about suppressing what was going on. It was. it was trying to paint a rosy picture of both the Red Army and conditions in, inside the Soviet Union and Moscow, et cetera. And this actually was um, kind of what the West wanted, what the Allies wanted to hear. They wanted to keep Russia in the wars. They weren't really interested in, in, in hearing the truth, so it suited Roosevelt and Churchill. What they seem to be doing now is largely invention, isn't it? It's about trying to spread a, a false narrative. But to what end? I think we often scratch our heads to wonder what, what good this actually does to the Russians, given that no one seems to believe them. Is that a kind of analysis you'd, you'd go? Yeah, on it, has,
1: it has changed uh, completely. I think the best way to look at it is during the Second World War, or as the Russians call it, the Great Patriotic War, um, Stalin had a very simple message to give to the Soviet people, and it was in two, two words. It was just, to Berlin, everyone understood uh, that... Uh, They were going to go all the way to Berlin. There would be huge sacrifices, and uh, they had to be prepared to uh, to endure them uh, in in the Russian way. Um, These days, it is completely unclear what the purpose is of the invasion of Ukraine or the special operation. Even some of these Russian military bloggers, uh, who are basically all hugely in favour of the war, uh, have been scratching their chins and saying, "Well, there's no." accepted reason for why they're fighting. They all have to make up their own minds. And he says, it's such a shame. It's so easy for the Ukrainians. They're just defending their land. Well, it's taken 15 months for them to come to this conclusion. So there's a good reason why Russian propaganda is so confused, because there's no earthly reason why people should be dying in such large numbers. Ukraine is not a Nazi state, even though that's endlessly repeated. Obviously, there are a large proportion of the Russian population who accept that they are fighting this war and they're going to have to because they've got no alternative. They don't want to be seen as the bad guys. But uh, the more educated, the more westernized elements of the population, of course, are fleeing as fast as they can.
2: Alan, you've covered many Russian wars, as we've heard, including Afghanistan and Chechnya. How would you characterize, if we can say there is such a thing, the Russian way of war, and have we seen anything different do you think in ukraine
1: as a general rule they begin with a catastrophe the question is can they recover from the catastrophe or rather how long how long does it take uh, if you look at the uh, stalin's war against finland what we call the winter war uh, it began rather like what putin is doing today the declared object was to uh, to help the Finnish working classes liberate themselves from the white bandits in power, the white being those who were against the the revolution. That didn't really work. And uh, the first months of the war were a complete catastrophe because for the Red Army, which was ill prepared, while the Finns fought much better. So you can see a direct parallel with what's going on in Ukraine. The second thing is that defense ministers in charge usually seem to be people who don't know anything about fighting. Uh, The man who sent Soviet troops in Afghanistan, Marshal Ostinov, despite being a marshal, had never had any military experience. And Mr. Shoigu, the current defense minister, who has actually been there since 2012, the same amount of time that Gerasimov, the chief of staff, has been in post. Shoigu has, if you see uh, a picture of him, has a wall of medals on his chest, but he has absolutely no connection, no experience of the military at all except in some arms production. So an enduring aspect of Soviet and Russian life at the top is suspicion of the military that they may take over. What in the communist times was known as Bonapartism, like in the French Revolution. The people make a revolution and then some military dictator takes over. So you tend to have second-class people at the top running the defence ministry.
2: It's fascinating, isn't it, what you've just said there, Alan, because I think it it gives us a little bit of insight into uh, something that we've been scratching our heads over for pretty much the last year. And that's the extraordinary infighting between the MOD, Shoigu and Gerasimov on the one hand, and then Wagner and and its uh, extraordinary boss, Prigozhin, on the other. And it seems to us completely mystifying that Prigozhin should be allowed to criticise the top of the military in this way. But What you've just said sort of makes a little bit more sense of that. Is is that pretty much what you're seeing? This is a bit of divide and rule from Putin. You can't let the established military get too, uh, you know, too entrenched.
1: Yes, I think you're on the right path. there. Of course, uh, it is extraordinary how far Prigozhin has gone, but he has been relatively careful not to blame Putin. So Putin is still the good czar. And one day the army, uh, Gerasimov, will get the blame. And Putin, of course, likes to be above these disputes. Uh, he's the good czar, but above the disputes. And he lets them continue for a while. And then he, then he steps in to show that he is the, the one and only boss. Uh, the difference is that with Prigozhin, it has gone far, far longer uh, than anyone, anyone expected and been more damaging. And the question everyone has to ask is, if Shoigu is so incompetent, as he probably is, why the hell has he been in post for more than 10 years? And Gerasimov, too. I mean, is the, um, is the gene pool of top people in uh, Russian government so small that they are irreplaceable? Surely not. Of course, Shoigu's advantage is that uh, he's not uh, a full-blooded ethnic Russian. He comes from Tuva, uh, a Buddhist part of the Russian Federation. So he would be an unlikely Napoleon, a, complete, a very unlikely Napoleon. You could also say that he's been in practically every government since 1991. So that's what um, is that 30 years? He's been almost every every government since the Soviet Union collapsed. Which means only can only mean one thing: if you work for Yeltsin and for Putin, you must be a sort of toady in chief rather than anything else.
0: Can we say uh, something about the Russian people's relationship with the truth? Uh, Or rather, well, we'll start by talking about the Russian authorities' relationship with the truth. I'm thinking particularly of the way that uniquely among the Axis powers, the Russians have never had to confront their actual role in the the Second World War. So as you say, it's still the Great Patriotic War, Uh, the fact that they were uh, allied to the Nazis for a third of it, roughly. Is something that is just is not in the history books, and when in the brief period that when there was a degree of freedom and a reexamination of of Soviet history, you know the the window was closed pretty quickly. I'm thinking again, in particular of, of the Katyn massacre. So um, this, of course, was the mass slaughter of um, Polish officers and intelligentsia carried out by the Soviets when they occupied Poland after the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact was signed subsequently of course when when the bodies were discovered the nazis made great propaganda use of this saying um, this is what what communists do but when uh, the red army recaptured the area they then sort of faked up the scene to to show that it was indeed the uh, or to claim that it was actually the nazis that had done it astonishingly in the last couple of months the narrative that it wasn't the soviets but the nazis who had done it is now being uh, repeddled even though back in Uh, As long ago as 1990, President Gorbachev did actually admit that it was Stalin and uh, the NKVD who were responsible. What does that tell us, Alan, about the Soviet authorities' relationship with truth?
1: Well, I think it it tells us a lot uh, about truth under Putin. Putin is extraordinary in the sense that he has no sense of where Russia should be going, no sense of where Russia ought to be in, in 20 years. He looks eternally backwards. He has, of course made the victory in the great patriotic war uh, a cult, uh, and no one can criticize it, even for example um, a um, an academic who questioned whether it was right to allow a million people to starve in Leningrad, as the city was called, uh, rather than say making it an open open city and uh, uh, and allowing them to allowing them to survive i mean he lost his job for that, so Putin has created created this cult, and everything. In his mind, looks backwards. Uh, the most recent statement, I think it was yesterday, he announced with great pride that people fighting in Ukraine were the descendants of those who would fought all the way to Berlin in one thousand, nine hundred and forty-five. Well, what's the point of that? <laughs> what's the point of that? But it's very, it's very important, very important to him. So uh, I think you have to, you have to understand this departure from the truth from Putin's point of view, he really is looking, looking backwards. And he obviously would really like to turn the clock back, which, as we know, can't happen. As for lying, I mean, there are, there are some stereotypes that some countries are more prone to it. Some countries have a higher tolerance for hiding the truth. I think in the Anglo-Saxon world, we have a low tolerance, though probably uh, we make up for it with a certain amount
0: of hypocrisy. That's what I was going to wanted to come on to, Alan. Which is, you know, from the outside, it seems that Russians are the Russian public are particularly susceptible to accepting at face value what they're told by their leaders. Do you think that's uh, that's fair? Yes, relatively, but I wouldn't exaggerate
1: it. I mean, you could go back to the 19th century; uh, most of the population were still serfs. That is, they were the they were owned, body and soul, by landlords until until the, until the 1860s. So that is a very different uh, history to Western Europe. You also have to look at the fact that Russia has an eternal anxiety about its lack of borders. Quite difficult for a British person to get in their shoes being an island nation. But there's really nothing uh, between Berlin and Moscow to stop an army just uh, mo- motoring all the way to the Kremlin. Of course, the French did it and the Germans did it, and indeed the Poles in the past. So huge uh, indefensible border uh, with China, for example. There are no mountains uh, on their borders except with, with the Caucasus. So there is this sort of existential anxiety that Russia, despite having more territory than anyone else in the world, is uniquely vulnerable and therefore has to stand behind the leader.
2: Well, that was uh, lots of food for thought. Fascinating points made by Alan there. Do join us in part two when we'll hear more from him.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Welcome back to the Battleground Ukraine Big Interview. Our guest today is Alan Phillips, author, veteran foreign correspondent based in Moscow. This is what he told us next.
2: Alan, as we know, what partly did for Russia in its escapade in Afghanistan was the sheer number of body bags coming back. And, you know, that pales into insignificance uh, compared to the casualties that we're seeing in Ukraine Are you seeing any indications that the public is beginning to turn against the war as the body count ticks ever upwards? Uh, And if not, why not? Why are things different now?
1: I'm afraid I don't see that. Obviously, the media inside Russia is extremely ruthlessly policed, but not uh, as ruthlessly as would be the case in China, for example. YouTube, for example, uh, is still available, Uh, Telegram channels. There's nothing to stop the whole of Russia tuning in to Prigozhin and uh, the rants of Gierkin, uh, the war criminal who was held responsible for shooting down the Malaysian aircraft. So I don't see it. But you are right that obviously there are many more body bags have come back uh, than ever did, ever did from Afghanistan. If I was trying to look at it through Putin's eyes, I would say, oh, well, Gorbachev was to blame because he he tried to liberalise things. Liberalisation equals weakness, equals change of power, and then everyone loses their jobs. So I can understand it from Putin's point of view. You have to walk in the steps of Stalin. I sometimes wonder why Putin seems to be so confident when basically everything he's tried to do uh, has gone wrong. And I do feel that he thinks he has Stalin's hand on his shoulder and uh, maybe uh, is following in the steps a little bit of Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. This is the disadvantage of uh, reading too much history, of course. With respect to yourself, so. so (laughs) (laughs) Um, Reading the wrong type of history. This is what happens when you read the wrong type of history. You think that you can do uh, in the 21st century what what Stalin did in uh, the 20th or Catherine the Great in the 18th.
0: Uh, Now, going back to the book, Alan, it, it seems to me that there are actually some pretty strong parallels between what was going on then in terms of the plight of the journalists and what is happening now. There's been virtually no coverage, has there, from the uh, Russian side of, of the front, from uh, Western media. Um, I think you, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that there had indeed been a bit of access given to a French camera crew. Can you say something about that?
1: That's right, yes.
0: The coverage
1: is either done by, by Russian journalists, military, military bloggers, who tend to be very well connected with, with the people on the ground, and the occasional very trusted sort of fellow traveler i think there was a there was a german woman but i was intrigued to see that just this week the french tv station tf1 had been invited to uh, to report on the war from the russian side uh there was some very interesting footage of the trenches presumably the best trenches in the world all perfectly dry uh wooden with uh, sort of wooden walls, right up right up to the top, and uh, and plenty of places to hide. Um, this caused outrage among the pro-Ukrainians because, of course, the voiceover uh, neglected to mention which side was the aggressor aggressor and which side had been invaded. It was just, oh, here we are walking through walking through the trenches, and uh, the Ukrainians are about to invade, and let's let's see what the Frontline soldiers are saying uh, how they're going to stop stop these evil Ukrainians advancing on them. Well, I'm not sure that a British or an, or an American TV station would accept the terms that you can view our trenches, but uh, let's not hear who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So that's um, a rare thing. And I think it was probably quite successful because it looks, even if they only saw the minuscule bit of the most well-built trenches, it did look pretty impregnable. And uh, if you if you didn't know anything about the war, you would think, hmm, those Russians are going to stick there, they're going to win. So I was a bit shocked by that, actually.
2: Can we talk a little bit about the end game, Alan? It may be a fair bit off, we have no idea, of course, but there, there have been some interesting developments as far as uh, Ukraine's possible membership of NATO is concerned, particularly France's change of position on this. I mean, it had been saying before, no, we really don't. And this is just a few months ago. We we really need to be careful about this. this is something Russia will never accept, and uh, it's changed its position on that. And it, it does seem that there's a move to encourage the possible membership of of NATO as a means of bringing everyone to the negotiating table. My question relates to Putin. What is the minimum do you think he needs to get out of negotiations? To allow him to feel he's, you know, he can stay in power, uh, and he can also negotiate a peace he can sell to the Russian people.
1: I'm going to be a little bit glass half full here. I think Putin would accept uh, a ceasefire. You know, stop the fighting uh, where the where the front lines are at the moment, and this would give him the option in five years or whenever to start again when they're better prepared and basically take. The remaining part of the Ukrainian coastline, which they haven't taken already, of course, Black Sea coastline is a, a very highly prized asset in Russian terms, and uh, they lost a lot when Ukraine became independent, but they have gained quite a lot of it: the Sea of Azov and the whole of, whole of Crimea. So I would see Putin being able to accept a ceasefire, which would not lead to any any withdrawals or nothing significant, and he would be able to tell. The uh, Russian people. We play a long game, and uh, we'll re- we'll return to the fight. Uh, you will remember in Stalin's time, at the beginning of the Great Patriotic War, as the Russians call it, the Red Army retreated for the best part of eighteen months. Retreated for what eight hundred miles from from the border all the way to the Volga. It was only at Stalingrad, on the banks of the banks of the Volga, that the army stood and fight. By which time Stalin had withdrawn from controlling the, were believing he was a great strategic genius and allowed the generals to uh, to do the job properly so i would see putin taking a long-term view and given his control of the of the media at home i don't think it would be difficult for him to accept uh, a
0: ceasefire looking forward alan uh, when the second world war came to an end the Soviet Union, the reputation of the Russian people and the other Soviet nations uh, was boosted enormously, wasn't it? There was a a huge climate during and after the war uh, among Western nations of uh, support, admiration for the Soviet Union and the Russians. My feeling is that 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 has gone forever now and that whatever the other consequences of the war are, russia's reputation, its sort of moral standing or whatever moral standing it possessed, has been completely trashed by events do you Do you think that's true?
1: Uh, I think that's true as regards Europe and America, but I think we should be wary of being too atlantic centric if you look at uh, china, India. South Africa, Brazil, none of these countries are notable for having condemned the condemned the invasion. They may not be in favor of it. I don't think they probably are in favor of it. But there's a general sense that the American ascendancy has gone on too long. If you cast your mind back to, I think it was 1991, an American think tanker came up with the, said this was the unipolar moment when America was uh, uniquely the most powerful power in the world, uh, and by a long chalk. Of course, he described it as a moment, and that moment has gone on for more than a generation now. I think uh, in the global south, there a lot of countries who think, well, we've had enough of uh, uh, the American ascendancy. Uh, let's have a bit more multipolarity. And of course, you can see that in the Middle East, the Americans no longer really have the Saudis under control. Very important in terms of oil prices. And of course, the Saudi uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman has huge ambitions, which really don't involve sucking up to the Americans at all.
2: Final question for you, Alan, um, because at times uh, the reality of this situation is pretty grim. and it's interesting your point on where Russia will be placed in years to come. We we feel its military is going to be a, in a pretty um, poor place. But of course, Russia's reputation among the rest of the world, as you pointed out, won't necessarily be trashed. It, it, it could be the opposite. Do you have any optimism that Ukraine can, well, effectively win the war and recover its territory and therefore... Putin's extraordinary ambition to, as you put it, return, you know, to to look backwards and return to some kind of Soviet Union type hegemony will be stopped in its tracks?
1: I think it's quite likely that uh, the Russians will be stopped in their tracks. But I'm cautious about the word, the phrase Ukraine winning. Russia has huge resources of of population, uh, minerals, land. So they can carry on fighting for a long time. It would require the Ukrainians to surprise the world, I think, to really drive the Russians out of of eastern Ukraine. So I can believe that they can get some territory. Can they regain all their territory? I'm not an optimistic on that, but I would prefer to hear optimists speaking on it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay Alan, well look that, that was stuff, fantastic full of insights and illuminations and has um caused me to uh, rethink a few a few of my positions so um that's always a good thing thank you very much for coming on uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you it's been great to talk to you both <laughs> Well, I think that was uh, one, of, one of the best uh, interviews we've had in terms of giving us a real insight into Russian thinking, Russian history, uh, not just on the subject of, of their sort of propaganda methods, but uh, just the whole kind of way of Russian way of doing things. I've known Alan for a long, long time. We were colleagues together on The Telegraph, and he was always uh, regarded by everyone as, as being one of the most insightful, thoughtful, erudite journalists in the business. And I think he's, he's shown that here. What were the standout points for you, Saul? Well,
2: he's uniquely well placed to, uh, to talk about this, isn't he, Patrick? Because he has a historical understanding, but also a deep knowledge of the way Russia's done business in the last 30 years from the perspective of a journalist. He clearly loves Russia, but he's also pretty clear-eyed about what they've become under Putin. Uh, And he explained to me for the first time, Patrick, I think this extraordinary ongoing battle between Prigozhin on the one hand and the senior military on the other, when he spoke about the determination in Russia throughout its history to avoid bonapartism, that is generals who get too big for their boots. We saw this, of course, in the Second World War, Patrick, as you will remember, where uh, Stalin is endlessly paranoid that some of his successful generals are are going to become bigger than him. And his endlessly trying to cut them down to size. And and is this an explanation? It, it probably is for why Putin has been so willing to allow this infighting happening underneath them. The You know, the good czar idea, you stand above it, let them fight beneath. It's a sort of divide and rule scenario. But the fear of generals getting too big for their boots is, is the interesting insight. And I think I find that fascinating.
0: Also shed a lot of light on... Putin's character, personality, motivations are all rather uh, negative. I mean, I, I was really struck by the way he portrayed Putin's vision as being essentially in a rear, he's looking in the rear view mirror the whole time, doesn't he? He hasn't actually has got a plan for the future. He's taking such inspiration as he gets from the past and from great historical figures, notably Stalin. Most people would think this is the last man in the world that you would actually want to take as a sort of role model. I mean, it's it's interesting that we don't think uh, still of Stalin uh, in the same terms as we do Hitler. But Stalin and Hitler, there's very nothing to choose between them, is there morally? Yeah, this is the lodestar that uh, Putin follows. So I thought that was fascinating. Also, Uh, the rather to the contrary, the idea that he would be ready to accept a ceasefire along the current lines. What did you think about that, Saul? I thought I thought that was a really telling point.
2: Well, no question he would be prepared to accept it. Uh, I I don't think there's any doubt about that. The war has gone incredibly badly for him up to this point. I mean, the counter argument, of course, is that that is something Ukrainians absolutely could not accept, even if it was counterbalanced by Membership of nato, so if that 's the case, and i th- 'm sure he 's absolutely right on that if that 's the minimum he 'll accept no there 's no chance of negotiations. My personal feeling is that Putin would accept less than that actually. how much less is it, is another point probably the state status quo antebellum that is antebellum to the invasion last year, and obviously not pre two thousand and fourteen but one last interesting thing that i I took out of this interview, and there were so many is the business about how actually the Russians have got a little bit more access to uh, news outside than we've, sometimes giving them credit for i mean he made the point that they still get youtube they still get telegram they can get contrary views to the sort of you know the state version and that's very different to china so we're not talking about you know they're absolutely shut down in terms of anything they hear from the west and that would imply that there are an awful lot of people in russia and i think alan was hinting at this who actually are quite happy to go along with the sort of putin line that it's all the west fault and that is quite worrying
0: yeah no i'd agree with you with you on that one I I think there is a huge amount of willingness to accept the Kremlin narrative but also a kind of deep unshakable sort of national characteristic which combines both a sense of victimhood that they're always trying to get us with a sense of moral superiority that they are always right and that whatever they do is morally justified so uh, I fear that that's what we're seeing now.
2: One thing we should just tell the listeners, Patrick, um, off air, we had a quick chat with Alan after the interview, uh, and we got onto a, n- a number of things that we would love to have recorded actually, but he, he did tell this lovely anecdote about someone in Moscow with their, you know, their brand new home and their triple glaze windows, uh, looking around thinking, well, I, I should have made it, but actually I'm not quite there yet let's go and find someone to bully. And that is that sort of classic element of of Russian character, which you can see, frankly, in this war.
0: Okay, that's all we've got time for. Do join us on Friday when we'll be looking at all the week's news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.